We're in 2 Chronicles chapters 14, 15, and 16 today. This is the account of the life of King Asa, who is now the third king in the divided kingdom. We had Rehoboam, followed by, you remember his name, the three-year wonder, Abijah, and now his son Asa, who will be king for 41 years. So uh, that's, a, that's a pretty big haul here for number three. Should we have a quiz later so you can get all the king's names memorized? How many, how many had to do it at least once in their life? List all the kings in order? Yeah, was it north and south? I don't remember. North and south, yeah, we had to learn it. And uh, different students I was in school with had different memory tricks. Somebody had a song that didn't make any sense to me because I didn't know the tune. So I, I'm not going to learn a tune. And, I'm not going to learn some country western song and then change all the words when I got to memorize it by tomorrow morning. You know, it's, it's, they're, 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 that's not how things work. But anyway, this is Asa. That really is his picture. I'm not kidding. That's not really is his picture. Um, but... Uh, uh, Let's get into chapter 14 here. So we've divided Asa's reign, or I have, into these pieces. He's going to have early reforms, and then there's a war. Then he has later reforms, and then there's another war. And then he gets a disease. Okay? That's a fairly easy outline to remember. Uh, Reform, war, reform, war. And then uh, he gets in trouble about the second war because he didn't follow his own reforms. And that's, that's the story of, uh, of Asa. So let's begin. Abijah rested with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. We already had this verse. His son Asa became king in his place. In his days, the land was quiet for 10 years. Um, Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. So why did the land have peace for 10 years? Because Asa was a, yeah, listen to the Lord, was a good king. Excellent. He removed the foreign altars. What's the difference between a foreign altar and some other kind of an altar? Yeah, it's who the altar is to. More than, my point is more than what the altar looks like. So it, in, in most cases in Palestine at this time, an altar was an altar was an altar. It's stones piled up or more likely built up in a square with horns. But it's who the altar is dedicated to that's the issue, not what it looks like. But so he removed the foreign altars and the high places, and I would say that those are probably also the high places dedicated to foreign gods because later we're going to find out that later he removes uh, other things, but not the high places in Judah that evidently were for the Lord which is still a problem, but let's get degrees of understanding what he's doing. Otherwise, we're going to think, we're not going to understand the text. There must be a distinction somehow for this. He demolished the sacred memorial stones and chopped down the Asherah poles. What's an Asherah pole? Yeah, could be a tree or it could be a stick. Okay, so anything from a shovel handle... To an oak, you know, some, and probably a lot of them were just sticks that might have something uh, carved on them, something like that. 
probably not exactly like a totem bowl, but something carved on it. Um, and, uh, but he went up and, and cut them all down. Um, he told Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to obey his law and command. I'm going to come back to that word seek a little bit later. Let's hold our discussion for a little bit. Um, actually, for the beginning of chapter 15. Um, but So I'll, I will come back to that. But he removed the high places and the sun pillars. Anybody have an NIV open? Incense altars in the NIV. I have no idea where the NIV got that. I really have no clue why the NIV says incense altars there. Uh, uh, let me finish the verse. I'll show you a picture. Uh, so the kingdom enjoyed peace and quiet under him. The Hebrew word is not the word, the normal word for incense altars. It's chamanim, um, which I've written, got there for you also in Hebrew, chamanim. And it, it kind of rhymes with come on in. Let's all say chamanim. Did it help that I said come on in? Okay. Uh, and sun pillars. This is not a sun pillar. This is a stone from a stone circle about five miles from Stonehenge. Okay, but it look. I, I forget the name of it. But they, there are there are. Um, what are the poems that describe the stone circles in uh, in Umpity Pumpity? I forget the kind of verse it is. Anyway, um, uh, because there's 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 no example in Pal in Palestine that's identifiable as a sun pillar. Um, what do we call a sun pillar today? If you if you look at photography, is you know how a sun dog in the wintertime are those rainbowy reflections on the sides? A sun pillar is when it's just a line coming up from the sun up in the sky because of the way the horizon or the clouds are shaped, as opposed to the fingers of God that come down from a cloud. You know, the, that's not what a sun pillar is here in the text. This is something like what I have here. It's a stone that was set up, and as Larry said earlier, the point is not what the thing is, but who it's dedicated to. So this is dedicated to not a false god in, in terms of like Chemosh or something like that, but to the actual sun. So that's the point of a sun pillar, is it's actually dedicated to the sun. Who around Israel worshipped the sun? Egypt, yeah. This is an Egyptian false deity. Okay, he built fortified cities in Judah because the land was quiet. He had no wars in those years because the Lord gave him rest. Um, it's, a, it's curious that he builds up the cities because the land was quiet. What does that tell you about King Asa? He, he's expecting a war and we have time. Let's use it, right? This is a king who's looking ahead. I've, I've got time to reinforce. Maybe I shouldn't go fishing. You know, maybe I should actually get something done uh, in the kingdom. So he does. He may also have used labor um, to keep the soldiers physically fit. <laughs> Did he use them to also build up the fortresses? Also, who would be a good guy to direct how the fortress fortification should go? Wouldn't a general who has to command that fortress be a pretty good individual 
to say this is how I want it. And then for the engineer to say, well, you, you can't do it exactly that way or the front half will fall off. And, the, and, the, and then the commander would learn something about engineering and the engineer would learn something about military tactics and it would be good for them both to work together that way. Asa said to Judah, we will build these cities and surround them with walls, towers, and barred gates. The land before us is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We sought him, and he has given us peace all around. So Judah was not at war with anybody at this time. Not Israel, not Philistia, not Moab, not Egypt. They, they, they had peace on all sides. Um, and just a, a look at the kinds of cities we're talking about. This is somebody else's campaign. It's unimportant, but uh, the, 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 the dark dots, the, the individual dots, not the dotted line, are the, the main fortified cities. We went over this last time, actually. The main fortified cities in Judah um, going up. We're going to talk about the top half of this map a little bit later. So they built and prospered. Asa had an army of 300,000 men from Judah who carried large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin, who carried shields and were armed with bows. They were all strong, powerful warriors. So how many soldiers does he have? Almost 600,000. Does that number mean anything to you? 600,000? It's how many Moses had coming out of Egypt. Moses had 600,000. Asa, just counting Judah and Benjamin, almost has 600,000. That's, isn't that amazing? That that's, that's, how the, that's how things had grown in Israel at this time. Uh, so just from two tribes. All strong, powerful warriors. And notice the difference. Most of the guys just had spears and shields. You know, how do you get a spear? You go out back and you take one of your farm implements and you bang the hoe into a spear or whatever, right? Or you sharpen a stick into an ox goat and you've got a spear, right? But in Benjamin, they were a little bit more creative and they were armed with bows. Uh, in ancient times, what we think of as a primitive bow, which is called a recurve bow, normally today they're made of what substance? Plastic. Most bows are plastic. And, and the plastic has no, in a recurve bow, the plastic is uniform throughout the bow. It's the same plastic. That was unknown in ancient times, except in short bows. Long bows like this would have been what we would consider to be compound bows. They didn't have a pulley system like our compound bows, where you've got a wheel on top and a wheel on the bottom and extra things. So that when you pull, you've got extra force coming. They did it by laminating different kinds of wood into the bow so that the centerpiece was especially strong and the ends were especially bendable. And they got the same force as a compound bow by drawing the thing back and you got this extra snap from the top and bottom. It had to be identical because if you, if you mess that up, it's a little bit like violin making. You know, if you've, if you've got top and bottom that are a little bit off, then what happens? The arrow always hits the ground, you know, five feet away. So it's got to be, but if it's done right, wow, what a bow you have there. And the thing about bows and arrows, anybody know about the Battle of Agincourt in the 1400s? 
Henry V went up against a massive army of the most well-armed medieval knights in shining armor with a couple hundred bowmen and won the battle with almost no losses because he took in archers. And they figured out, oh, you know what? All that armor? If we go backwards to bows and arrows, the armor means nothing because uh, armor can be pierced by a metal arrow um, or, or, uh, or stone, you know. So, okay. So Benjamin, also later, uh, uh, earlier in the Bible, Benjamin had been known for, uh, for slings, things like that, and left-handed soldiers. And here, Benjamin is always a creative tribe when it comes to warfare. Okay. Then Zerah the Cushite came out against them. I don't want to spend a lot of time on this. Some people think that Zerah the Cushite was this guy. Uh, uh, this is actually Osorkan, who is, there was an earlier Osorkan I, I, I talked to you about. This is the son of Shishak, who had come in Rehoboam's time a few years earlier. Um, I think that that's wrong. Uh, that Osorkan would have been an Egyptian, not a Cushite. Um, and I, so I think probably we're talking about somebody like this. But a Cushite king, here you see a, a, a king who is, uh, he's uh, smelling a lotus because how beautiful, and he's pointing at what is that thing in front of him? It's a dead goose, yeah. Yeah, or a dead duck. It's probably a goose. Um, so he has something nice on the table for himself. Um, and, uh, and, uh, but anyway, a Cushite king, Zira the Cushite came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots. Doesn't the 300 chariots sound tiny when you think about a million? Um, and advanced as far as Maresha, Asa went out to confront him and they formed battle lines in the valley of Zephatha at Maresha. Um, however, that, that, the Hebrew says a thousand thousands, which is usually a multiplication problem. So what's a thousand times a thousand? It's a million. That's where the, that's where the translation gets million. Um, other translations will have thousands upon thousands or something like that, or many, many thousands. I think it's a virtually uncountable number. It's just a huge number of guys. But if it's something like a million against... Asa's force, what are the odds? It's two to one, right? It's two to one or, all, or nearly two to one. And Zira has got chariots. That's important. What do chariots get you? Speed. Fast movement from A to B. Chariots in, in, in biblical times, chariots are used for almost nothing except speed. They're, they're not really a military weapon. It's just a quickly A to B. And there are usually two or three guys in a chariot. You hit a driver and you might have a, uh, uh, the actual warrior and then a kid who would be like the one who held stuff or passed things. Uh, we would maybe call him a, uh, a shield bearer or something, but he was just the gopher of, in, the, in the group. You know, hand me, you know, where, where's the map? Give me the water bottle. That kind of thing. Get out and tell the other guy, what? Yeah, get out and tell the, you know, that, that kind of thing. He'd be a runner. So Maresha, we're not sure about where it was, except we think it's near Lakish or Lakish. And that's where I put it here, but 
I really don't know exactly where it was because it doesn't survive in any place name in Israel and neither does that valley that was mentioned. So we're not entirely sure except that all the ancient written texts talk about it being near, like between Lachish and Azekah. So that's where I put the diamond here. Um, otherwise I can't really tell. But can you tell by looking at the Dead Sea and you've got Jerusalem to the left of the Dead Sea, you've kind of got the idea of where we are. Um, earlier, in, in a previous war, we saw uh, that probably, no, it's probably more like gold. Uh, gold and or slaves. Uh, also, Israel had good grazing land and good cropland. So you're, that, that's what you're talking about, is, is I can make money off these people. But we also saw that Shishak and his sons had known Jeroboam I, who had lived there for like 20 years. And so they had a, an, an, an alliance tie with the northern tribes of Israel. So to attack Judah would be a good thing as far as their alliance goes. So we have that going on as well. Verse 11. Uh, Asa cried to the Lord his God. And this is kind of a new one for the northern kings. Asa asks God. So, Lord, there is no one except you to help the powerless against the mighty. Help us, O Lord, our God, because we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this horde. Lord, you are our God. Men will not prevail against you. And the Lord defeated the Cushites before Asa and Judah, and the Cushites fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar. I'll just show you that quickly. Gerar is the lower diamond. I'm going to come back to that in a second. Uh, the Cushites fell until none of them were, were left alive because they were broken before the Lord and before his army who carried away a large amount of plunder. So the, the battle happens here at Maresha. Uh, and they're, they're, they, they chase them, they route them all the way down to Gerar. So you've got a force of, of almost double the Israelite size routed and fleeing. Um, but we're going to find out here in a second that not all of them were professional soldiers. The king of Cush, did not, he came with a lot of guys, but sometimes numbers is not the same as skill. You know, quantity and quality. Um, so they struck all the cities around Gerar. This is after the battle because the dread of the Lord was upon them. They looted all the cities because there was a great deal of plunder in them. Also, they struck the tents of the herdsmen and carried off very many sheep and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. So they plundered the, the Philistines. Um, and what, was there aid that the Philistines had been giving? Or did the herdsmen come from Philistia? Um, exactly what happened there? Well, let's just talk about this army that he had brought. This, this is a typical ancient army. It might be arranged differently according to battle. But you usually have a main force. And this is, whether it's Egypt or Cush or the Greeks, they use this pattern. So your main force in the middle, uh, the Greeks would have called them the hoplites. They're the guys with the best armor and the best weapons. And then who do you put um, in front of them? Well, your horsemen, your cavalry, your infantry, whatever you happen to have. Because they can get around fast, they can suddenly vanish and come back or whatever it, it takes. 
That was a tactic that the um, American cavalry used out west in the days of the conquest of the, of the American West, however you feel about it politically today, it was their tactic to, uh, to, to, to provoke uh, a Native American raid and then the cavalry would leave and the Indian force would then attack whatever fort it was, then the cavalry would come back from over the hill um, and, and, and trap them, but it was a fairly common tactic. Also, just watch a John Wayne movie. Um, <laughs> Now, near the main force, you have the auxiliaries. Um, and in, in Greek, I forget if they're, the farmers are called the peltas or something like that. But these are the herdsmen who are not the main soldiers, but they sure make the army look big, right? And a good commander would not care about them at all, in the least. They would usually be conscripts. They have to fight. And he would sometimes just pile them into one area to draw the enemy in. And then his good force would come around and, and attack the enemy. But So what's the job of those herdsmen? Your job is to stand there and get killed. And then we'll come in and win the battle. But that was the way that they treated them. Then who, who's the group in the front of an army? It's the vanguard. The van is the front of an army. They're just the guy, they're scouts or whatever it is who are back there. And if you have a vanguard, then in the back you also have a Rear guard. So that's, that's the way that these armies were formed. And that it seems to be what the Cushite King Zira brought up against Israel at this time, except a lot of his auxiliaries uh, didn't amount to anything. He didn't really have a vanguard and a rear guard that were useful. And, he, and they, they got broken. They routed and they all died. So this was a king who wasn't able to come back. Oftentimes, also, you have this issue with Egypt where the surrounding... Oh, and later on, we're going to be told that maybe there were some Libyans mixed in here, too, um, in another chapter but in, the, in this particular battle. But in Egypt, there was this contest between the traditional pharaohs of Egypt and then the priests down south in Karnak, uh, where, the, where the Nile was narrower and faster, where the tombs of the kings were, all the, most of the pyramids except for a couple that are up north, um, they, were, they were all buried down there in the south, up in the hills. And there was a, a, a contest in Egypt, are, which, which group are going to be the next set of pharaohs. And then sometimes from the outside, a Cushite king would come in with a great victory and kind of buy Egypt and become a pharaoh. At the time of the prophet Jeremiah, there seemed to be three pharaohs in Egypt at the same time. There's a pharaoh down at Karnak, there's a pharaoh up at Memphis, and there's a pharaoh, uh, a Cushite pharaoh, somewhere in the delta, in the Nile Delta also. So if Israel asks for aid from Egypt, what's going to happen? Nobody's coming. Because if I leave, the other two characters are going to take my land away. So I ain't going. And so what does God say about Egypt? It'll be like leaning on a broken reed. It'll just puncture your hand. You're not going to get any help from Egypt because they got problems of their own. So don't rely on Egypt at all. You've been listening to Invisible Church, the Bible study podcast from St. Paul's Lutheran Church, New Wall, Minnesota.